going to keep worshipping together as we look at God's word together. We're going to turn to 2 Kings. We're going to read from chapter 24. So we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 24, starting at verse 8 to verse 16. 2 Kings 24, starting at verse 8. And as we read, we remember that this is God's word to us this morning. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehusha, the daughter of Elthan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. And the king of Babylon took him prisoner in the 18th year of his reign, eighth year of his reign, sorry, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. Praise God. We thank you, thank him for his word to us this morning. This morning, we were going to think about God's promises, right? And we're thinking about the king, the snake, and the promise. We're in this big Bible overview, and we're this morning at the point of exile. Now, I think as we, as we think about the exile, it's often the most foggy part of Scripture for us. We get creation. We get all that happens in Genesis. We get that Saul comes, we get that King David comes, we get that Solomon comes, and then after that, it all gets a little bit messy, we're not quite sure, there's a bit of a gap, and then Jesus arrives in the New Testament. Well, we're trying to make sense of the exile, we're going to try and and break this down, we're going to think about what is the exile, we're going to try and teach in the first half of of this morning's time, we're going to try and get our, our, our pieces in place with what's going on in the exile, and then we're going to try to apply it. What difference does the exile actually make to our lives? So as we arrive into this exile, this banishment, right, we've had Solomon, and Solomon who was the wisest man on all the earth, and yet he was the greatest fool. We thought about him last week, the wisest man on all the earth, and yet he's the greatest fool. He has his heart turned in old age by idols, by all of his wives, and by all of his concubines. He's compromised late on in his life. His heart is taken, and he worships false gods, and he sees the glory of the Lord fill the temple, and yet what does he do? He fills the land with pagan sense of worship. He meets with God, and yet he walks away from God. And so in 1 Kings chapter 11, in verse 11, God states, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. And then the Lord tells how it will be divided. So God, what do we learn? God must punish sin. Solomon has been unfaithful, just like Adam. 
He's been unfaithful. He was in the promised land, always going good, just like Adam. And yet his heart is compromised. And just like Adam and Eve, they're cast out of the promised land. They're exiled from the promised land. They're banished from the promised land, sent out of God's perfect place once again. And so history repeats itself. Now, if we want to chart the history of this, uh, please do turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, if you have your Bible. 1 Kings chapter 12, and you'll be able to see this. uh, Solomon has passed away. Solomon dies, and his son comes to the throne, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam comes to the throne, uh, and in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, he has this decision to make. Who's he going to listen to for counsel? Is he going to listen to the young men, or is he going to listen to the old men? So he goes to the old men, first of all, at the start of 1 Kings chapter 12. He goes over to them, and they give him good advice. Old wise heads. And then he goes to the young men, the young ambitious men. And he takes counsel from them, and they give him awful advice. But what does he do? He listens to them. And as he listens to them, what happens is the kingdom splits in two. It'll come up on the screen for us here to try and make this a little bit clearer. We have a northern and southern kingdom, not too different from ourselves, a northern and a southern kingdom, right? Two different kings here, King Jeroboam and King Rehoboam. So Rehoboam is the one that we're talking about here at the start of 1 Kings 12. He, he takes really bad advice. He's the king. He's Solomon's son. And what happens is this northern kingdom, they rebel. They think to themselves, no, we're not going to have this. And so they set up their king, Jeroboam. Not helpful that the two names are pretty similar, but King Jeroboam. And they take the 12 tribes and, and they leave, right? So they break away. They set up a new cap, capital city, Shechem, which then becomes Samaria. And they do their own thing. They live in their own way. But what do they also do? Well, King Jeroboam does this. He sets up two golden calves, just like Exodus. He sets up two golden calves. And he says to them that in 1 Kings 12, 28, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. He sets one in Bethel and one in Dan, and these are the gods that they're going to worship. So right from the beginning, false worship, idol worship once again in this northern kingdom. We're told then by 722 BC, the Assyrians come, and the Assyrians destroy this breakaway ten tribes, and they're never to be known again. They're wiped out from the face of this earth. And notionally, some of their descendants will be the Samaritans that we pick up again in the New Testament. But the ten tribes in the northern kingdom destroyed 722 BC. The southern kingdom, well, in the southern kingdom, there's two tribes left. Judah's part of that tribe. And they they don't really fare out much better. The the kings after Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, they're all rebels. They're all rebellious. They all do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so too in the southern kingdom, they get about a half-half split if we read the, the, the history through 1 Kings and then the Second Kings. Some are good, some are bad. Ultimately, they rebel against God too. They worship idols. They have their capital city as Jerusalem, but then we see what happens here at the bottom. 597 BC, partial exile to Babylon, and then 586 BC, the temple's destroyed and further exile. It's all a mess, isn't it? idol worship, compromised hearts, evil kings, bad kings, kings who won't lead their people in the worship of God, and the whole thing splinters and falls apart. It's all surrounded in idol worship, and it's Eden replaying itself over again. 
Just like Adam fell, just like his heart was compromised, just like he sent out of God's perfect place, so too are Israel. They're sent into exile. And the question at this moment is, just like we thought about with the boys and girls, what's God going to do? Is he going to keep his promises? He said to Abram, I will make your people great. You will have so many descendants. He said to David, there will be someone from your line that will sit on the throne forever. Someone's going to come to crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. Who's it going to be? Will God keep his promises? Well, just like a good box set, you're going to have to come back next week to find out the answer to that question. This week, we're going to think about the exile. We're going to think about what happens here. You see, in the midst of this, in the midst of the Old Testament, and to give away a little bit of what's coming next week, we know that Jesus is coming. Things are in the worst state possible. There's shadow and death upon all of the land. The kings are bad. And then out of the darkness of the Old Testament, out of the gloom and out of the mist, who will come? The light of the world will come. That's the one that we're waiting for. So the people who are dwelling under the shadow of death, on them a great light will dawn. That's where we're heading next week. But what does the exile change for us this morning? What does the theme of exile do for us this morning here in Hill Street? What difference does it make to our lives? Well, we've got to know that God punishes sin. He punishes idolatry. But we also got to know that He calls us His exiles. So this theme that, and this motif that runs through the Old Testament is picked up into the New Testament. Instead of being a negative, it's turned into a positive for us. And so each of us here as believers are called exiles. That's who we are. That's what First Peter says. Just after the passage that we read this morning for our call to worship, Peter says that you are sojourners and exiles. It's what Paul means in Philippians 3.20 when he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and for, it, for from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what a, a person that I was reading this week called Elliot Clark, he writes a book and he calls it Evangelism as Exiles. The Exile. What does it mean for us? Well, it, it's a model in the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament people knew what it was like to be the foreigner, to be the outcast, to be not the, the people in control as they come out of Egypt originally. They're in exile. They wander about in the desert. They're different. And then again, at this point in Scripture, they're taken off. The, the, the northern kingdom's totally destroyed. The southern kingdom, they're brought into exile. Daniel and Esther, the two books that are written during exile, they're carted off from Jerusalem to Babylon, and they sit down by the, 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 the waters of Babylon. And what do they do? They sit by the rivers there, and they weep, the psalmist tells us. But for us, well, those, themes, those same themes, they carry through, right? That we are exiles, that this world is not our home. Easy way for us to think about this is if we go on holidays or we end up in, say, Spain or Portugal or America or wherever it may be, we maybe join in some of the local culture. We maybe partake of the local culture for a week or two weeks. We're in it, but we're not of it. We may dress like them for a week or two. We may talk a little bit like them for a week or two. We're in their culture, but we're not of it. We would never put down our roots there. We wouldn't think of buying property there for two weeks. We wouldn't think about investing into that place. We're just there for a little bit, but we're going home. And so that's what it's like for us. 
And the challenge is really simple for us as we sit here this morning. It's, it's where is our spiritual citizenship? Where is our citizenship? Are we exiles, elect exiles under God, or are we not? We're either citizens of God's kingdom, or we're citizens of this world. God is either our king, or we are our own king and our own queen. And what I want us to think about is, how do we live? How do we live as citizens? If this is who we are, if we're exiles in this world, what does it actually look like for us to live in Babylon? Because that's where we are. We can't fool ourselves. We're not part of Christendom any longer. This, this theme of exile should resonate in our hearts today. We're in Babylon. We're in this world that we live in. So what does it look like? What does it look like for you if you're a teenager and you're a Christian? What does it look like for you to follow Jesus in the corridors of school or at the house party? What does it look like for you if you're a university student and you're about to arrive into halls? What does it look like for you in the working world? With the culture and the conversation all around you, not like what it's like here. It doesn't sound like what the conversations we have in church. It sounds so different. What does it look like for you in retirement? What does it look like for you if you're thinking about who you're going to date? What does it look, about, look like for you if you're thinking about how do I raise my children? What does it look like for us to follow Jesus in Babylon? Well, see, not much has changed in this modern world. There's false gods all around us. We have our shrines and our idols and culture that we are told that we need to bow down and we need to worship at the feet of. Every day we are preached to, every day as you go to work or as you make your journeys to and from, there's billboards and advertisements, there are flags and campaigns that preach to you every day the culture of Babylon. And this world has an agenda and it's not the same as our gods. This postmodern world that we live in is heading at 100 miles an hour towards moral bankruptcy. So how do we live in it? As we bring children into this world that has been totally, uh, totally jettisoned itself from logic and coherency, from authority and from truth, what do we do? Well, with two options. Well, with three options this morning. Our first option is we think to ourselves, right, Let's everybody put in a few pounds at Hill Street. Let's buy a big field somewhere down south or in England. Let's build a really big complex. Let's dig a moat and let's just draw, pull up the drawbridge and let's retreat. We'll, st we'll stay here. If we're, all, if we're all together, if we all just live in one big community, if we keep ourselves out of the world, we'll be all right. We'll make it through. Option one. Option two is that our citizenship really doesn't mean much to us and instead we act like a social chameleon so wherever we are, we just blend in. We fit in with the crowd. We, we become part of the culture that we're in. Jesus, not that important. On Sunday, yeah, he's important to me. Rest of the time, not so important. Or the third way that we can live. The third way that we can live is found in Jeremiah. And it's really, it's going to be helpful to, to look this up for us. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 5 through 7 I think I have it on the screen. Here it is. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. What do we do as Christian people? How do we live in Babylon? What does the Lord say to us? Option one and option two aren't great. So what do we do? Option three, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. What do we do? We don't retreat. We don't become chameleons and just blend in. We live as exiles. We live as people who are different. There's a little image that I thought would capture up. We are different, right? We live as exiles. We are different people. We live for the good of this city. And what is the city like that, that Jeremiah is talking about? This city in, in Babylon, it's not a nice place. It's infested with idols. But he says, I want you to live there. I want you to settle down there. Don't try and run away. Don't try and escape it. But live in this city and bring my peace to this city. This is something I think that should excite us. As I was preparing for this this week, it really excited me. Thinking, how do we do this? How do we do it for Lurga? How do we bring God's peace to this city? How do we seek the welfare of this town? How do we pray for this town? How do we live as exiles in this town? I don't think it's a, it's a thing that should frighten us. It's a thing that should excite us with the endless opportunities. And so one commentator puts it like this. says, God is going to give us an address in the suburbs of hell. And he wants us to create beauty and glory for him in this hard place. And that's us. And so Francis Schaeffer wrote this, talking on the same thing. He talked about how he would throw open his, his doors of his house, of his home, and he would invite people in. He said that, that they had uh, paint, uh, they, to paint a picture of their home, that they opened it up to this radical community of people who came in. All their wedding gifts were broken or torn or destroyed. People burned holes in the carpet with their cigarettes. People threw up on the carpet. But you know what? People were introduced to Jesus. People got to meet with Jesus in his home. And so we live as exiles, but we also live as Christ's ambassadors in this world. And so John Piper says this, we confront the world, but we strategically adapt to the world. See the difference? We confront it, but we also adapt. We separate from the world, but we participate in it. We are not of the world, but we are in the world. We're not conformed to this world, but we become all things to all people so that they get to know Jesus. And so we have a wonderful opportunity to go as Christ ambassadors and to do what? Invite people into this citizenship. It's not like trying to become an American or become a British citizen or an Irish citizen. There's no exams to pass. There's no money to pay. You just come to the king. You come to King Jesus and you say you're sorry. Lord, I have rebelled. Please let me be part of your kingdom. I trust you and I believe in you. And our king says, you can come. Because he's paid the price for us. And so this is what we are to do. We're to go and invite people into this kingdom, into this citizenship, into this city that we, one day we're going to live in. This city where there will be no pollution, no graffiti, no rubbish, everything will be well. There'll be no dead grass, no broken bottles, no confrontations, no domestic violence, no danger in the night, no stealing or killing or vandalism or ugliness. Our city will be perfect. 
one day when we live with God forever. And it will be perfect because Jesus will be there. He will walk in it. He will talk with us. He will be part of every part of it. It will be a holy and a beautiful and a peaceful place. And so isn't this an amazing opportunity that we have as exiles to hold this world lightly? This place isn't my home. I'm not investing into this, but I'm going to invest into a different kingdom. This is my citizenship. This is who I am. This is what Jesus has done for me. Brought me out of darkness and his marvelous light. To do what? To proclaim his excellencies. And so we are ambassadors for our king. And as we live in Babylon, as we live in Lurgan, how do we do it? Well, we do it as a community. That's why coming to church is so important. That's why belonging here is so important, because we can't do it ourselves. We have to be in a community here that, that we can invite people into this community, this beautiful community. What people experience inside the walls of Hill Street should be something that mirrors what heaven will be like, a community of people who love one another, who pray for one another, who are invested in each other's lives, people who know one another, that they see genuine friendship whenever they come through these doors, that people feel welcome and safe in this community. That's the community that we have to cultivate and to generate together because we live together as exiles. So our community needs to be authentic and it needs to be genuine. That's a challenge for us here. Each of us as believers. What does Hill Street conjure up in your heart whenever you think about it? Does it reflect heaven? And well, if we want us to strive on in our community life as a church family, if we want to do that, well, then we've got to invest in here. It won't just happen. We've got to make ourselves available. We've got to be at things. We've got to spend time with one another. We've got to speak to people, even though that makes us feel uncomfortable sometimes. How are you? Sit with someone. What's your number? Can I phone you during the week? Can I call around? Can I visit you? It's saying if you're a young person, this is where I'm going to build my house. This is where I'm going to buy my house in this town so that I can invest into this church. This is where I'll invest my money. This is where I'm going to form friendships to build this community, not just so that we can enjoy it, so that we can invite others into it to experience Jesus. And so I think that whenever we start to get this right, whenever we start to live as exiles in this place, part of a church family, it's a beautiful thing. And it is a little foretaste of what it's going to be like as we come along and we sing praise together, as we pray together, as we enjoy one another's company in the Lord. So how do we live? Well, we live as part of this Christian community we live with joy for Jesus, and we're outward focused. We seek the welfare of this city. And so what do, we, what do we do with our lives? Well, our homes, think about our homes. What are our homes? Our homes are a gift from the Lord. Our, our homes are a gift from Him, a place that we can do ministry, a place where people can come and meet Jesus. If we have got a table in our home, which I assume most of us do, that's a place that you can gather people. You can gather people around a table, and you can cook them a meal. You can give them a cup of tea and a biscuit, and you can start to talk to them about who they are. How are you? Meet them where they're at. 
And then you can introduce them to Jesus. It's not quick. It takes time. It's costly. What about our cars? If we own our car, our car should be a tool. A tool for the gospel. A way to transport gifts to people. A way to bring people to good things. To bring people along the church. To invite our neighbors and say, look, I'll even give you a lift. Whenever we seek the welfare of Lurgan, as Jeremiah 29 states, the welfare of this city, as we pray for this city, what does it look like? As we pray for this town, for the people who are in need, for the broken families that are in need, do we want to see people coming in here being totally transformed and changed by Jesus' amazing grace? as we sign up to adopt or to foster young people who live in this area, as we help those who find themselves in pregnancy, as we take time with the addict, as we pour into young people who we maybe encounter in our town who are mouthy or cheeky or just don't want to know. There's a hundred ways that we can seek the welfare of Lurgan as we pray for the people. Why? So that they can come and be part of this community. Exiles, drawing other people into our citizenship, inviting them along. That's what ticks my mind over. That's what sparks my imagination. How do we live for Him? How did the early church live for Him? The early church, as we thought about just a few weeks ago in Philippians, They lived in each other's pockets, in and out of each other's houses daily. They knew each other. They were best friends with one another. And yes, they probably rubbed each other up the wrong way. We know they did. But what did they do? They were able to call sin out in one another. They lived for the support of one another. Why? To exalt and to magnify Jesus. Because that's what it's all about. To see other people come to know Him as Lord and Savior. That's what it's all about. Living as exiles in this world. And so here's this quote from evangelism as exiles. Elliot Clark says, people who would never cross the threshold of a church will still walk through your front door. People who are indifferent to religion or disinclined to Christianity will still appreciate a friendly dinner invitation. I love this. One-way sinners enter the kingdom is by first entering our kitchen Some will only come to the table of the Lord after first coming to our dinner table. Isn't that amazing? And so what does it look like for us? An opportunity to invite people along into this place to experience the Lord Jesus so that they know Him. So we finish this morning. This town is living under God's wrath. We know that. People outside of Jesus are under his wrath, and they're going to go to an eternity separate from our God in hell forever. But it should fire us up because we want them to come to know our Jesus. And so what a beautiful thing it would be. I I remember a person came to Union College, and I've shared this before. He came to Union College, and he told about evangelism in his church, about how people were living. And he asked one of the people in the church to stand up, Bill, for example. He said, Bill, stand up. Bill stood up. He said, Bill, when did you get saved? Bill shared when he got saved. He said, who who in this church introduced you to Jesus? 
and Bill pointed across to somebody else in the church. We'll say Bob. Right? He said, Bob, introduce me to Jesus. He said, Bob, stand up. Bob, who introduced you to Jesus in this church? Someone else. He points over and says, Ben, he introduced me to Jesus. He spent time with me. He introduced me to his church. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm running out of bees, right? I'm running out of bees. Do you know how many people? 14 in a row in that church. 14. One after the other. It was that person. It was that person. It was that person. A lineage of grace. 14 in a row. A chain of 14 different people who someone else in the church had brought them along to Jesus. Either at the dinner table, in the car, in some way. Isn't that incredible? Isn't the Lord's grace at work in our lives? And this morning, how do we live as exiles? This is what we start to do. Start to think and pray about Jeremiah 29. How can I seek the welfare of this place? How can I pray for this place? And then we reach out. It's the theme of exile. It's the theme of exile that continues through the whole of the Bible. And God says us that this is us. This is who we are. We're in the world, but we're not of it. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're watching online and you're not a Christian, and you've started to have your mind exposed to what it should be like to be part of this kingdom, don't think that our king stands with a a rod or with a sword to beat you up or to cut you or to humiliate you in any way. Our king stands at the gates of his kingdom, and he says, come, come to me, all who are weak and are heavy laden. Come into our kingdom, and you will find rest, and here you'll have peace. Praise God that we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jordan's going to lead us in prayer as we reflect on God's word as we pray for others. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word to us. We praise you as our great faithful God, the one who always keeps his promises to his people. We praise you for your grace in our lives. You have taken us as unfaithful people and made us into your people. And so we pray this week for your help. We pray that we will live as your faithful people and we will live for your glory. Help us to remember this week our identity in this world as exiles. We long for the day where we get to take up our true citizenships in your presence forever. But help us to keep looking forward, to keep seeking ways into which we can seek the welfare of the place you have placed us. Would you fill our minds this morning with all kinds of ideas of how it is that we can serve you in this town and for the people you have placed around us. As we come to pray this morning, we also want to remember our world. As we look out at our world, we see tremendous brokenness and hurt. News tells us tales of war and hunger, sickness, abuse of power and sin seem to constantly be before us, Lord. So we pray that you'll help us not to despair. Help us to remember your sovereignty. Help us to remember you are in control and you work in and through all things. Father, would you graciously continue to build your church in a world which seems so distant from you. Bless our brothers and sisters. Remind them of your sovereignty and power today, wherever it is they may be. 
Help them to be comforted in all circumstances of your goodness and grace which is present. Help them also to look forward to that coming day when we will be in your presence forever. We long for that day where all the nations will be gathered together to worship and sing your praises. And as we look to that, would you lift our eyes off our circumstances and put them on yourself. Aid the work of the gospel around the world. Help our charities and our organizations continue to work not only to help people's physical needs, but to have their greatest need, to have their sin dealt with. And Father, for this we pray for our own land. Help us not to fret about coronavirus or our government or our circumstances, but help us to find comfort in you and you alone. May we be greatly encouraged as we look at you. Help us to point others towards yourself, reminding them of the gospel hope we have as your people, and to love them in a manner which is worthy of your name. Help us today in whatever circumstances to seek to glorify you. And for so many of us, that is so incredibly difficult. We can feel distant from you. We feel as if nobody understands what is going on in our heads and our hearts. But Father, this morning we find comfort that you do. That you know us better than we know ourselves. You see our needs, which are many, and you grant us a peace and confidence in all things. In our congregation, we want to remember those who are suffering at this time. Be with those who have lost loved ones. As significant things happen as anniversaries come around, we feel the hurt of lost loved ones so much more. May we, in those little moments, know your grace more fully. Help us to care for those in our lives who don't yet know you or confess you as Lord and Saviour. Many of us have been praying for years and yet change seems so incredibly slow. Help us this morning to be patient. Help us not to get frustrated, but to keep looking for opportunities to share your good news with those people. Graciously grant us those opportunities this week, we pray. May many hear your word and the gracious welcome of the gospel and respond with faith. Father, we pray for those of us who are suffering with either physical or mental or spiritual struggles. To help us to turn to you, to find the hope in you, to know the nearness of Christ yet again. As we await test results or doctor's appointments, as we feel those dark places in our own heads and lives, as we feel ultimately like terrible followers of you from time to time, may we be reminded of the great blessing of being part of your people. You are incredibly faithful. You have provided for every one of our needs in the Lord Jesus. And so help us this week to live for you and your glory. Grant us the grace to work through all suffering and sorrow, knowing Christ's great strength and mercy. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.